Welcome to the audio podcast of The Father's House. We hope and pray that you are both challenged and encouraged by this time in the Word. Uh, let, let's uh, jump into this new series. We're going to talk about uh, the name of the series is Alone. And uh, for just two weeks, and to motivate you to get connected in a group, I want to talk to you about the dangers of isolation, the dangers of isolation and the benefits of community. There's something that God has designed you for, and that's to be interdependent with one another, not codependent, but an interconnectivity to where your weakness is served by somebody else's strength, and we walk together in this thing called the body of Christ. So I think something probably all of us can relate to at some level is this. We've all experienced some loneliness. You can be a junior higher here today or middle school, high school, college. If you live life very long, you've experienced isolation, you've experienced loneliness, and it can actually perpetuate for months, even years. I've seen people live for decades in isolation, and it's devastating. It's devastating emotionally, mentally, and spiritually because it's not God's design for your life. So uh, we can learn about isolation and the pain that comes from it, from separation from community, uh, all the way back in the book of Genesis. And so you, we, you can learn a lot from the first family. And I'm not talking about the Bidens. I'm talking about the Adam and Eves, okay? Cain and Abel's. Uh, how many you know when you're the first family on the planet, you don't need a last name? So that's how that just, it's just Adam and Eve. That's, we're the only ones around. But something happened, first chapter of your Bible, eight times God says he saw that it was good, all right? He saw that it was good. So he separated day from night, saw that it was good. He separated the oceans from the land. He saw that it was good. He created the beast of the field and the birds of the air. And he saw that it was good. And he created all the flowers and trees and vegetation. And he saw that it was good. And as he looked at the completion of his creation, he said this, is very good. Eight times, good, 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 it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then he said, let us create man in our image. So we have the community, the eternal community of the mystery of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, having a conversation. And they said, let us make man in our image. And so they made Adam. But Adam was by himself. And the first time in Scripture where God does not sign off on his work Genesis 2.18, he looks and he says, it is not good. Eight times, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, very good, it's not good. And what is the rest of that sentence? It is not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be in isolation. And so he made a helpmate, he made Eve, and they procreated, and they had a couple of boys, and they had more kids, but the first two that you know about are Cain and Abel. But because Cain and Abel were actually born into the fall, the fall of sin, they grew up with a sin nature. Just a heads up for the new parents in the room. You don't have to teach your kids how to sin as they grow up. Has any parents figured that out? Rebellion's going to show up. You don't have to train them how to be rebellious or lie about something that, that happened. It's just the fall in nature. So Cain gets a little bit older, and they, they're grown now, and he gets ticked off at his little brother, as does happen in families. And he says, Abel, why don't you go on a little field trip with me? And when he gets out there in the field, he beats him down, and he takes his life. What I've seen is that's a continuing theme throughout time and eternity. Do we have any youngest of the siblings in the room with me? Come on. I'm the youngest of three, and I can say it's true. Watch out, they'll take you out in the field and they'll beat you down. <laughs> My older sister's here today, and she can testify to that as well. And so 
when this happens, when Cain slays Abel, he was actually ostracized. He was divided from the presence of God. And there's a unique verse in Genesis 4, 16. We'll go to the word here. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence. See, God had this protected area in the garden of his presence, communion, fellowship. He walked with Adam and Eve. Look at this. And he lived in the land of Nod. He lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, this word Nod means the land of aimless wandering, aimlessly wandering. He's living now in isolation. He's away from his parents, he's away from his family, and he's away from communion with the Heavenly Father. Why? Because never forget this, sin always separates. Sin separates. First off, it separates you from God. And so thus the cross, to, to mend that separation between the Creator and His creation. But some of you have lived long enough, you can testify that when you're bound in sin, it begins to separate you from your church. It begins to separate you from your small group and from accountability, and sin can separate you from your kids. It'll separate you from your spouse. If we get entrenched in the chains of sin, it will eventually isolate us from everyone who cares and loves us. Now, there's a, a German theologian he was actually martyred for his faith back in the 1940s, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was so brilliant, we're still reading and quoting him today, but look at this quote. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive the power of sin will be over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in his sin, the more disastrous his isolation will be. Can anybody testify that Living in the land of Nod ends up being a disaster for your emotions, for your finances, for your relationships, because God has not designed us for isolation. Now, we'll also see in the medical and psychological fields that it's devastating to live life by yourself. The NIA, the National Institute of Aging, let me read you a couple stats. Loneliness and social isolation have been linked to decline of cognitive function, greatly increasing the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Loneliness among heart failure patients was found to produce a risk of death as high as 400%, four times as much as those that live in community. And the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, everybody knows about the CDC, right? They concluded that loneliness and isolation should be viewed as a serious public health risk, and there is no vaccination for that one. <laughs> so what we find, it's consistent. Science and psychology always catch up with the written word of God. And during the first service, a, a guy sent me an article. I was just checking it out in the back. It's a thorough Harvard study that people that are in strong relationship live significantly longer than those that are not, even if diet and exercise is practiced by the person in isolation, they still die prematurely compared to the people who maybe have some alcohol abuse or don't have a good diet. So all that to say, it's better to eat Twinkies with your friends than broccoli alone. <laughs> Are you with me, somebody? That's solid right there. So God has created community for us. Here's what it says in Hebrews 10, 24. It says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Could you read the bold with me? And let us not neglect our meeting together. Oh, stop and think about that. 
Guys, we're not just trying to get you in the building. And if you're still at home on the couch on the stream for the last three years, this is bigger than you just being comfortable. There's something that happens in the community of believers that does not happen in isolation. You can get some ministry from a stream or a podcast or on demand, but nothing compares to being in the room where someone can give you a hug and a smile and we worship together and we receive prayer. Come on, give me an amen on that one. That's why he said, hey, don't neglect it as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. This word and concept of encouragement, it means to infuse courage, to infuse strength into one another through proximity. So uh, I want to share a brief video here that I just love. One of our small group leaders, uh, Maurice, he wants to share his story, and you're going to enjoy this, of how he went from isolation to community. Check this out. When my wife and I first started to come to the Father's house, we had just uh, been a part of a church that had ended up closing its doors. There was this portion of me that was just so hurt that I wanted nothing to do with getting connected with people. I was in a place that I just didn't want to open myself up again because I was in pain. Then one of the men that was a part of a Bible study I led at the old church was actually a part of the Father's house already. And he had been calling on me, Mo, you gotta, you gotta come to this group, man, it's really great. And I'd shine him on, yeah, okay, Dave, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think I'm ready yet, I'm not ready yet. And so one time I decided to finally go to the group and I fell in love with the group, it was, it was amazing. I got freed from a lot of the pain that I was feeling from the closing of my old church and then started hanging out with these guys. And ironically, the group that I joined, I now lead this group of men. Um, it's just the most awesome presence of God to be surrounded by people that you know have your back unconditionally 24-7. I was shooting senior photos for one of the guys from my Bible study, Mike Kusada and it was his daughter Maddie, and we got seven pictures in, and I received a phone call from my mother. She couldn't wake up my brother. I packed up as much as I could, and I flashed over to my parents' house, and Mike asked for the address. I'm running back and forth between my mom, trying to get her to breathe, and check in with my dad, and make sure he gets into a wheelchair. And so I'm going back and forth with all this, and I walk out in the front yard, and here's Mike. Standing in my, my mom's front yard. And he says to me, he goes, I'm here. this community that I'm now a part of through my group, without them, I'm not even sure how I would have made it through that day. 
I never would have expected the relationship with Mike to be on the level that it is right now with him. Never in a million years would I ever thought that. But here I am. And I'm thankful for it. But I can say the same thing for all the guys that show up that are a part of the group that I get to be a part of, that I get to hang out with, that I get to pray with, that I get to worship God with, that I obviously get to cry with. You know what I mean? I, I, I think it's, it's important. There is something for everyone. There's literally a group for everyone. I want to thank Maurice for sharing his story. He was here at the earlier service, and then he shared with me right after service that today is the anniversary of his brother's death, and he was actually able to share his story on that anniversary and how community has rescued his life, and there's so many stories like that. If you've been around the kingdom and walked through some dark valleys, but you've walked with brothers and sisters in Christ, there's so many stories of of rescue and strength that comes through community. Here's what I want to touch on for a few minutes today, and it's this. So I've been a pastor for a long time. Church is turning, this church is turned 26 here next month. And I've seen a lot of people that are in community. They're in church. They're in relationship. In fact, yesterday uh, we did a memorial service for a really close friend of mine. It's kind of tough. And Mike, he died at the age of 52. And, and so I spoke at the memorial, and, and um, I, I met a young lady out in the lobby, and she hasn't been to the church for five years. She said, I used to come, and, and but then, then I got married, and I just drifted away and haven't, haven't been around for, for five years. And I, that's a common thread. That's not an uncommon story where someone used to be in church, but she said this, as I was here today, I just felt like I got to get back in the house. I said, well, the door's wide open. I'll look for you at church. So if you're here, I love you. Talk to me later. But there's so many people like that, that they've drifted. They got out of community and they find themselves in a place of isolation, a place of mental, spiritual um, unhealth that they never planned on arriving at. And I would submit that there's a, there's a process when you go from community to isolation, because isolation has torment. There's torture involved. You know, those that oppose strongly the concept of solitary confinement have done conclusive research and evidence, and it's this. Solitary confinement consistently produces uh, mental illness, and so it is cruel and inhumane punishment. And the enemy will drive us into isolation if possible. And that's why it says in Psalms that our Heavenly Father, He sets the solitary into families. He takes people that are lost or in a cave or all by themselves and He picks them up and sets them down in the middle of a community. And so I, I, I watch this though when people go down this journey of isolation, there's usually a, a trauma, there's some sort of betrayal or disillusionment, but almost always there's areas of unresolved offense. An unresolved offense will cause you to draw back from people. And maybe you've been offended at God. Maybe he didn't keep his promise or someone you were praying for died or you didn't get the healing, you didn't get the job and so many people carry something against God and that unresolved offense will cause you to back up and back up until pretty soon you find yourself completely isolated from community. So I wanna briefly look at one character study. There's a guy in the Old Testament. His name is Elijah, okay? 
And he was a big deal. He was a major prophet. And in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, he's having a banner day. I mean, just boom. It's like he won the Super Bowl of prophets in chapter 17. Because here's what happened. The nation of Israel began to turn from the true worship of Yahweh, and they started worshiping the idols of Baal, pretty much a reflection of our country as you study it. And so as the country went to, the nation of Israel went to this Baal worship, this idolatry, and turning away from the ways of God and the true worship of Yahweh, Elijah said, not on my watch. So he called out the false prophets and the nation. He said, we're going to decide if Baal is God, go ahead and worship him. If Yahweh is God, then worship him. And I'll meet y'all up, out, uh, up at Mount Carmel, all right, this high place, northern Galilee area. And so sure enough, he invites all these false prophets, and they arrive, 450 of them. He says, here's the game. Here's the way it's going to play out. We're going to build two altars. You build your altar, put a bull, a sacrifice on top of it. I'll build my altar. You pray to your false gods. I'll pray to Jehovah. And whoever answers by fire, we will worship that God or gods. And they're like, game, it's on. You got a deal. He said, oh, one caveat to the bet here. Whoever loses, we're going to put him to death. Oh, the stakes just went up. So these false prophets of Baal, they go first and they begin to pray early in the morning and they're crying out to their false gods. Nothing happens. Hour goes by, three hours go by. It's lunchtime. Nothing happens. In the afternoon, I love this, Elijah starts to mock him. He says, hey, you got deaf? He doesn't hear you? You, know, you got no coverage up here on Mount Carmel? And then he says this, perhaps he's gone on a trip. And he just, he's mocking these guys. Well, they start cutting themselves with stones and knives, shedding their own blood in an attempt to get false gods to hear their prayer and send fire from heaven. It never happens. So late in the afternoon, Elijah says, my turn. And he says, hey, dig a ditch around my altar. And they dig this trench. He said, bring barrels of water. They soak the sacrifice and they put a moat around the sacrifice. And he prays one simple prayer. He says, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you are the true God of Israel and I am your servant, send fire. Woo! Fire falls from heaven. It doesn't just consume the bull. It actually burns up the rocks. It laps up the water. Nothing left. And so all these false prophets, they're like, we better get out of here. Elijah says, don't let them get away. They track them down to the Kidron Valley and they kill all 450 of them. Yeah, the Old Testament's a little brutal, but get over it. <laughs> it's the way it played out. So he's having kind of a banner day here. Why? Because now the entire nation is turning back to worship Yahweh. But something crazy happens. He goes from this high to a very low low in a matter of 24 hours. Have you noticed this? And if you haven't, be observant, be aware. Your adversary, the devil, is sneaking about like a roaring lion, looking for whom he can devour. And many times, you'll have your greatest temptation and test right after your highest spiritual victory. So we have to be aware of this. So um, they have the, this great day. And, but the, the king at the time, his name was Ahab. And he tried to be a godly guy, but he had a few idols on the mantle. But, you know, he's kind of halfway a worshiper of God and halfway a, a false uh, idol worshiper. But he had this messed up wife. Anybody ever heard of Jezebel? 
Okay, she was like this deceitful, lying, murderous, manipulative. In fact, if you're around charismatic churches, you might hear this phrase, they've got a spirit of Jezebel. Has anybody heard that? I got four Pentecostals and three charismatics. And all my Baptist friends are like, what is that? No, Baptist humor never works. Okay, whatever. So a spirit of Jezebel is basically this. It's manipulation. It's domination of those in spiritual authority. It's lies and this thing that just wants to take out the men and women of God and the plan of God. So Ahab knows when I tell Jezebel back home about this, it's not going to go well for me. All right. So that's where we're going to pick it up in 1 Kings. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. And look at this. And Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, over one manipulative lady. Well, that'll preach, but I'll move on. Okay. That was not a good place to pause there. That was my bad. So a couple things on the road to isolation, because today, listen, God's going to help some of you get out of a cave or reach out and share this link of this podcast to somebody who is in a cave. Number one, he believed a lie about his future that caused him to run in fear. He believed a lie from one lady. Now, this was the prophet of God. He just called fire out of heaven. He just slaughtered 450 false prophets. And then he prayed for a drought to be broken, a three-year drought, and God sent rain. He was a big deal. Not only that, God was not done with him. God had called him to anoint the next king of Israel and the next prophet to the nation. God had a plan for his life. Jezebel had no authority over his life. Where did he mess up? He believed a lie. Let me apply it to you. When you believe the lie of the enemy, the lie of wicked people, the lie of your flesh, the lie of your circumstances, you too will run in fear. And when we run in fear, we never run toward God. We run toward isolation. And so he begins to run. And let me just share maybe a few sample lies that might resonate with a few of you here. We've all heard these. How about this one? You'll never recover from this. Or how about this? You're never going to get that job. They'll choose somebody more qualified. Or you don't deserve a godly spouse. You train wreck all your relationships. You're not qualified to go after that position. God won't use you in ministry. Who do you think you are? The business is going to fail. The marriage is not going to make it. You'll never have enough money to retire. People don't like you. You should just leave. And on and on they go. So guys, let me just challenge you. I need you to analyze the messages you're receiving in your mind. See, the, the battlefield is in the mind. That's why you got to stay full of the word and around community so people can encourage you. King David was the anointed king of Israel, but because Saul was after him, he finds himself way out in the woods in the cuts by himself, and it says that Jonathan went to him in the forest, and he found David, and you know what he did? He spoke over him. He declared over David, you will be the king of Israel. You will sit upon the throne, and I will be at your side. You're not going to die. You're, you're going to live. Listen, somebody in a cave, somebody up in the woods needs to hear you declare over them, you're going to make it out of this thing, and truth breaks the power of lies. And if I believe a lie about my future, 
If I believe a lie about my ministry, my marriage, my finances, I'm running away from faith. I'm running away from God, and I will run into isolation. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Look at this right here. Then he went on, what? Alone into the wilderness. Traveling all day, he sat down under a solitary broom tree or a juniper tree, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever prayed that? I pray it on most Mondays. No, I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> pastor humor. I've had enough, Lord. I'm ready to see you face to face. Like tomorrow would be great. I think we've all prayed that prayer. But something happened here. The verse I wanted to highlight is he went on alone into the wilderness. He left his servant. He said, you stay here. I'm going to go sit underneath a tree and whine and cry and tell God why I don't want to live anymore. Isolation will cause you to even leave your closest relationships in the distance. You see, the servant and the prophet relationship was very close. It'd be like Elijah and Elisha. They traveled together. They did ministry together. They were very close. They shared their lives. So when Elijah turned and told his servant, you stay here, he was breaking off the most trusted relationship. See, when we run to isolation, we begin to straight arm our closest friends. And when we do that, guys, we set ourselves up for failure. Now, when we distance ourselves from those kind of companions and community, that's when we're highly susceptible, listen, to a lethal attack of the enemy. That's why there's verses like Galatians 6.1 that says, carry each other's load, bear one another's burdens. Or Hebrews 12 that says, uh, strengthen the hands that hang down and make straight paths for the trembling knees. Do you know there are days in your life when you do not have and you will not have enough strength to make it forward without somebody strengthening your hands, lifting up those heavy hands and helping you get through it. You were never called to make this journey and live victoriously by yourself. And some days I've got enough strength for both of us, but there's other days where I don't have enough strength for either one of us and I need some of yours. And to quote the country song that I love, some days you're the windshield and some days you're the bug. That's solid theology right there. And so there are days where you need someone to speak truth into your life, to come alongside you, to lay hands on you, to pray for you, or you are setting yourself up for a mighty defeat. We need one another. I mean, think about this. I think it's Exodus 17. Moses, Moses, like he's the most heavyweight dude on, on the planet at this time. He's a spiritual heavyweight. He's the guy that came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And God said, I'm going to give you a strategy to defeat the Amalekites. Moses, you go to the top of the mountain and hold out your hands. Send Joshua down below with the armies. And as long as you lift up your hands, I'm going to bring you victory. So he, sure enough, he goes to the mountain. As long as his hands were up, Israel was winning. When his hands got tired and began to fall, Israel was being defeated by the Amalekites. And so he brings a couple sidekicks, Aaron and her, two of his right-hand guys, and they hold up his hands. And as long as they held up his arms, there was victory. I wonder if they experimented. They're just like, oh, no, we lost one. Bring him back up. <laughs> I'm telling you, 
as your pastor and your pastors and your leaders, we need some people to come alongside us and hold our hands up in the spirit and pray and support and encourage so that we can pray and support and encourage you. You can't do this thing by yourself. So don't leave your companions in the wilderness and go, I'm gonna go on by myself. You are setting yourself up for disaster. But this is the way of isolation. Now, he goes on a little further. He lays down under this juniper tree. He takes a nap, just snoozing. But God in his grace comes to him. Listen, listen. When you're running, when you're in isolation, maybe some of you today, you feel like I'm in a cave and nobody understands me and it didn't happen the way I thought it would be. You're in a dark place. God never leaves you alone. He comes to you by his grace. And it says that the angel of the Lord comes to Elijah. Now, throughout the Old Testament, this phrase, angel of the Lord, you'll see it multiple times. All theologians believe it's a Christophany, which, okay, a little education here. That is a pre-incarnate appearance of God the Son. You know, that Jesus did not receive his name until he showed up at Bethlehem in a manger. Before that, he was, in fact, God the Son. And so he would make visitations to earth. And so God himself shows up under this broom tree, and he provides him a meal. He wakes him up from his nap, and he goes, hey, here's bread and here's water, which speak of the word of God and the, the living water of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so Elijah wakes up. He goes, wow, this is awesome. We got angel of the Lord, God the Son. I got supernatural bread and water. He eats, he drinks, lays back down, finishes his nap. I think that's a picture of what a lot of people do in their Christian journey. Come to church, get a little drink, get a little bread. Thanks, pastor. Go back to spiritual slumber. Just take that. That's a way home or you think about it. <laughs> so I see some people leaving the room already. Those, that, those are demons pinching you and saying, check your phone. So just so you know, okay. First Kings 19, seven says the angel, look at this. He comes back a second time. And he touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights till he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Here's a detail. That's some really good food right there. That's some supernatural power smoothie. He has one meal and he gets up and he goes for 40 days and 40 nights. But I want you to see the third application point here. And it's this. He gets up and moves, but he moves in the wrong direction. He gets up and he moves, and it was about 250 to 270 miles he takes off, but it was in the opposite direction of where God wanted him to go to anoint the next king. There is no instruction for Elijah to go to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, so he just takes off to go to a place of religious tradition, to go to a place where Moses got the Ten Commandments, and perhaps speculation he was going just to say, this will be a great place to end my life. And I'm telling you, when we're going for isolation, we may get some food and some bread and some prayer, but if you don't deal with the lies, if you don't deal with the isolation, you will continue to run in the wrong direction, away from community. And that's what Elijah did. He traveled all those days. Now, God in his grace, listen, listen. God comes to him again, and I just want to encourage somebody. If you're here today and you've, run, you've been running from God or you're in isolation, you, you, this loneliness message is resonating in your heart, God doesn't leave you. He comes back. He's gracious. 
He's long-suffering. He's tender-hearted. It says here in our final portion, he says, the second time he comes in verse 10, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I want you to notice something here. He's rehearsing out loud the narrative that he developed why God wasn't faithful and why he was going to isolate himself. Be careful. I've heard a lot of this. Oh, here's why I don't go to church anymore. Yeah, I'm hurt by the church or bad leaders or those people don't like me or they're not loving or I don't fit in ministry. And there's a lot of narratives I've heard where we develop this and we'll even tell God why we're isolating ourselves and not following his bride according to scripture. And what did God say? Oh, I understand. No. No, he said, go back the way you came. And by the way, I have 7,000 prophets that have not bowed their knee to Baal. And you're telling me you're the only one? It just ain't true. So God lovingly and gently corrects him. And we'll have the band come out. Uh, he, he gives him two things to do. And this is for you today. He says, I want you to go back the way you came. He's 250 miles away. But just get out of the cave. And God says this. Go out and stand on the mountain in my presence. So he's in this cave. He's hunkered down. He wants to kill himself. He's depressed. He's telling God why it didn't work. He's giving God his narrative of how everything's gone backwards and sideways. You know what the Lord said? Just go outside and stand in my presence. And there was an earthquake. And there was this crazy wind and a fire, but God wasn't in any of those things. And then there came what? A still, small voice. And the whisper of God said, Elijah, Elijah. And I don't think it was a rebuke. What are you doing up here? You're failing the program, dude. No. I believe it was a gentle whisper. He said, Elijah, go back the way you came. And then I want you to anoint the next king of Israel. And I want you to anoint Elisha. I'll show you where he's at. Let me give you the application before we close. If you're in a cave, if you're in a lonely place, I want to challenge you, go back to community. Now, I'm probably preaching more to the people in their homes or on the stream than those in the room, but go back to community. Go back the way you came. Some of you, you're in isolation because there's an unresolved offense. Something happened at church and you just kind of brushed it off or figured, yeah, they can come to me if they want to apologize. Now go back. Go back to Matthew 18 and restore it. Go back to small groups. Go back to weekly commitment to being in the house of God. Go back to asking for prayer and showing up for prayer meeting. And you know what'll happen? All of a sudden the lies begin to break. You're back in community and you realize God, God's hand hasn't lifted off my life. And then he said, I want you to anoint the next king. And what he was saying is, Elijah, I'm asking you to simply give away what I've invested in you. You know how you come out of isolation? Just get busy. J just give away. You're like, well, Pastor David, I don't have anything to give. I mean, I don't know. No, you have something to give. Maybe it's a hug, a handshake, a word of knowledge, 
slip somebody 20 bucks, serve in the parking lot, help with adopt a block, whatever it might be. Every one of us has something to give. Listen closely. It says to the church in 1 Corinthians, when you come together, church, when you come together, every one of you has a psalm and a hymn and a prophetic word and a word of knowledge. And what he's saying is everybody in the house has something to give back. And if you'll, if you'll take this step, if you walk back to the way you came and say, God, I might not have much, but I'm gonna invest in somebody else what you've invested in me, he will restore your life, he will restore your relationship, and he'll get you out of that cave in Jesus' name. This is why we gather. This is why we meet. This is why we meet in people's homes. Now just everybody stay still if you can. I don't think anybody really needs to leave. There's three minutes left, okay? Hang on, little buddy. We started this church in a community of eight people praying for each other. Think about that dynamic. Everything you see, all the campuses and prison church network and conferences started around this principle. Just get together, lay hands on each other and give away what you've been given and watch what I will do. And today, God wants to use your life. He wants to call you out of a cave and he wants to set you down in the middle of his purpose. What do you say we respond and say, God, here I come. I'm gonna hear your whisper and I'm coming out of the cave in Jesus' name, amen. For more information on our church and other teaching resources, log on to our website at tfh.org or call our office at 707-455-7790.